Hey, everybody, and welcome to Veteran Trash Talk, Female Warrior Edition. I am your host, Leah. Thank you so much for joining us for episode eight. And I am so excited to have Ms. Marjorie here with us today. Before we get started, I want to do a quick shout out to our sponsor, Neuroflow. So make sure you're checking them out at neuroflow.com. I want to, I want to introduce Ms. Marjorie. I'm so excited. Something actually that stuck out to me about you when I heard you speaking in this room was when I heard you say that you had been like not owning the fact that you're a veteran for 30 years. And I thought, this is my people right here. I need to speak with her. So I'm so excited to have you on and get to know you better. So uh, Marjorie, I'm just going to let you kind of take over. Tell us about your military time and then we're going to move forward from there and talk about your business and what you're doing but we want to know more about you and and your history first so take it away okay well thank you um yeah i mean um, i never really talked about it so this is all new um i'll tell you i was back in in the navy i was a torpedo man in the navy back in 1987 and that's when i went in um, I was there less than 24 months, um, and um, I was a torpedo man, and um, to tell you the truth, I was going to join the service, I was going to join um, the Marines. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that I always wanted to do, I said I'm going to be a Marine, I had the posters in my room, I mean this was something that it was the dream to be a Marine. Um, to tell you, um, as soon as I graduated high school, on my graduation day, I went with my cap and gown to the recruiter's office, and I said I'm ready to sign up. And um, the Marine that was sitting there said to me, well, you could either be a nurse or um, secretary. And I said, I don't want to be either one of those. And he said, well, that's all I can offer you. And I said, well, there goes that dream. And sitting across from him was uh, the Navy recruiter. So he said, come over here and talk to me. And um, he gave me other options. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I, I, I originally went in as an airman. Um, I had to wait six months to go in. Um, I was living in New York City at the time. I was a New York City kid. Um, I just wanted to leave the city. Mm. And so I had to wait for six months. And I finally went in in January of 1987 um, as an airman. And during boot camp, I changed to a torpedo man because they gave me the options to, I could either go, go to um, electrician school, torpedo man school, or, you know, I had to wait like another year for another training school to open. So I said, so what's torpedo man about? You're going to work with weapons. You're going to work with nuclear weapons. You're going to have, you know, you're going to work with guns. You're going to, you know, take care of everything. I was like, I love it. I want it. So that's what what I did. Um, And I was stationed in Orlando. We did this is back in the eighties. They had a base in Orlando, Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, And they sent me to Orlando. I came to Orlando and I did also my training, torpedo man training um, in Orlando. Um. So I did that, and then I was stationed in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I, at that time, I met the, the, the man who was my husband, who became my husband um, in training school. He was a Samariner who already had experience way older than I was. Um, I was very young, naive, and um, got married very young. Um, and I got stationed in Charleston, South Carolina. He was stationed there. And um, he was a Samariner at the same, um, on the same base that I was on. And I went to the weapons department on the boat. I was on the Frank Cable, the USS Frank Cable, um, also known as the Love Boat. So, um, yeah, that's another story. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to know that story. So anyway, so they, they had us do like 
it was like six, seven months kitchen duty before we were even allowed to go into our department. Um, it was just so shocking. I mean, for someone who was raised thinking I'm going to join the Marines, I'm going to, you know, this is, I'm so proud of my uniform to arrive on the base. And, you know, people were so not proud of their uniform and it was just so, you know, it was just such a messy place. And then finally I went to the weapons department. We didn't have many women there. Um, it was very much a, um, a time of, you know, what are you doing here? You should be home barefoot and pregnant. Um, that was told to me many times. Um, I think the only thing that saved me was because I was I had such an attitude. Um, I was raised with a bunch of brothers and I was not, you know, I never allowed anyone to get away with anything. And I think that that's what saved me um, because I was very much hated in my department, I would say. Um, the chiefs didn't care for me. Um, their excuse was if you didn't put up with, you know, the BS that was going on in the department, or if you didn't allow someone to come on to you, or you weren't part of the games, then you're a whiner or you're a bitch. That was one or the other, right? So that was uh, the thing. And I was the, the person that whenever we went out to sea or whenever we were out at sea, I would, you know, the workday is over, I'm going to my rack, and I don't ever want to, you know, I don't hang out with anybody. Um, that would do the same thing. I would go to work and, um, and then leave when it was time for me to leave. Um, I'm not gonna say it was all bad. I had some great friends. I had some great people looking out for me. I did have my, you know, when I was working kitchen duty, I remember Chief Kokia. He was an amazing senior chief. He always looked out for the hardest working people. I mean, so it was, we had some good people that looked out for me, but then also I had people that I felt that should have had my back that didn't have my back. Yeah. Um, and those were definitely the chiefs in the weapon de department. They they couldn't stand that I didn't go along with the games. They couldn't stand that I was, you know, I don't know. I, I really don't know what the reason was. I don't really care what the reason was. The point was that you had someone who was there that was young, that instead of mentoring in a positive way, it ended up being a negative thing. And you were there taking your job seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Not I mean, dealing with any stupid stuff. Yeah. I mean, because my plan was originally was, you know, I'm going to go in, I'm going to be a lifer, I'm coming in for 20 years. I mean, when when we had the chance to do the, what is it, the, the with the college program, I was like, I don't need to do any of that because I'm going to be a lifer. I'm not planning to leave the military. I'm going to do my 20 years. This is my dream. Um, and, you know, and I took everything that I did very seriously. I mean, our training school was very difficult. I mean, it was... It was just such important work I thought that we were doing. I mean, we we're taking care of all the weapons. I mean, in, you know, with all the wars we've had since then, you know, you, you hear about tomahawks, you hear about harpoons. Trust me, I was there taking care of those things. I used to take naps on top of them, which was a thing that I shouldn't have been doing. But yes, we were down in the magazines. We would spend months at a time inside in the magazines and just sleeping with the bombs and everything else on the boats. So, um, Oh, I mean, the boats that had the capability of carrying bombs. That's what I should have said. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so it was just such a hard environment to be in. And, and the men that I worked with, you know, there were some that they were just, what are you doing here? You know, what are you, you're, you're such a whiner and, and you should be barefoot and pregnant. I even had one guy and, and you know, try to come at me, like, like wanting to fight me. And, and luckily I had some guys in, in my, our department were like, what are you going to do? You're going to hit her? I mean, it was one of these guys that always had something to say and it was just such a difficult environment and we had no support we had no support from our chiefs mm -hmm. um eventually um i got pregnant um there were two other women in the department that got pregnant and that was kind of like a target on my back um it was like let's work her as hard as we can 
And I mean, they had me moving hundred foot, you know, hundred foot hoses from one side of the pier to the other side of the pier for no reason. And the only reason that I didn't have to do it, but every time I would go down there and they had me doing stupid work, um, there was always some submariner from some boat or somebody like, what are you doing? Um, here, let's help you. And I would just watch and the chiefs would be standing on the, you know, on the edge of the boat, just with their hands crossed, mm. angry. Um, I even had one of the female officers on the boat one time I was walking through and, you know, and I was real skinny and I was real, you know, pregnant and everything else. And she came up to me. I never met her before. I don't even remember her name. And she said to me, she said, um, aren't you pregnant? And I, you know, I was wearing my regular uniform and I said, yeah. And she goes, I suggest you go get a pregnancy uniform tonight. She said, because everybody on the boat needs to know what's happening. You know, I was security on the boat. And that was the thing. I know in the Navy, we were usually have Marines that would take care of the boats. Um, and we were security. The weapons department was the security on the boat. But, you know, I had to do the four hour run across the boat, you know, 13 stories up and down, carrying, you know, a gas mask, a gun, you know, just all this weight on me. Right. And I couldn't have weighed more than 115 pounds. I don't know. I was pretty small. At least I thought it was tiny. Anyway, so, um, so, um, was the experience that I had and the other two women I have to tell you the other two women that I worked with they had miscarriages mm-hmm. um they were made fun of because why would they sit there and cry I mean they never met the baby this is one of the comments that one of the chiefs said and like what was she's being ridiculous like you know why what is she crying about and I'm standing over here listening and um you know it's not like she met the baby that was the comment and I thought what what the hell am I in I mean this is just the worst environment um I was horribly sick. I had to be hospitalized because I was just not eating and everything else. And I thought, you know, I, I would just pray every night, you know, baby, hold on. And um, finally, um, I think it was, you know, God's intervention was um, finally the, our boat was going to Italy. Now, what was happening was my husband was on a submarine and I was on a boat. Both of us were sea duty. Mm-hmm. That was not allowed you either had to have someone on shore duty and someone on sea duty when they were married. They would not do it for us. I mean, we submitted paperwork, we submitted, we, we tried to get off the boat. We were trying to figure out everything and they fought us on everything. Um, at the time it was because we were in torpedo men, we were both torpedo men and they, that was considered a class A training, which is you're not allowed to get off for pregnancy. You're not allowed to get out um, for any reasons. And because our, you know, they, they spent so much money on training us. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, they, they, made our life a living hell yeah um so finally our boat was going to italy and you know they were they fought me and fought me the boat was was going to be stationed over there um and they finally said okay we're going to get you off this boat and they were sending me to the weapons department in Austin, the the weapon station um so i said okay well that's finally um but in the meantime every day was a nightmare i mean when I was on the boat, I don't know if you remember, and people probably probably remember, you're way too young. Um, there was a submarine that caught on fire in the middle of the ocean. It was called the Batfish. Um, and pretty much it was an old um, diesel submarine. The batteries got wet, it caught on fire, people died on it, and they brought it to Charleston. And we, as weapon department, we shut down the base and they put me to stand watch like on 90 degree weather wearing you know full gear we were standing there with M16s. I mean, we were, in, you know, controlling the whole, the whole pier. Um, and I thought I was going to die. Here I am pregnant. And, I, and I, I had just gotten out of the hospital because I was so dehydrated. And um, they opened that boat up and the smell of it. And to this day, I can still smell it. I can taste it. Wow. And I just throw, started throwing up over the side of the boat. Yeah. And, you know, we had the admiral, we had all of the people on, you know, the, all the big guns standing there. 
and here I am pointing over the side of the boat and the chief started screaming at me and he's like, get her off the top of the boat. I mean, he was just screaming at the top of his, get out of here, get out of here. So anyway, their Would punishment never was- never been there in the first place. I shouldn't have been up there in the first place because I had light duty. That was another thing. They were like, well, if you can stand for 15 minutes then you stand guard 15 minutes and you can sit another tent, but you're going to be on the top of that boat. So anyway, they send me up there and the chief finally comes up here only because the admirals were on the, on the pier. And um, he said, you know, you're going to be punished. This is, this is what he said to me. He said, you're going to be punished. And he said, your duty, you're going to be stuck in the bottom of the boat. So they literally sent me 13 stories down on the bottom of the boat. And I thought, what kind of punishment is this? This is amazing. I'm in the shade. I'm inside 13. I'm underwater. The boat's like 70 degrees out there. And that was my watch. It was like, from now on, that was my punishment. It was that I was going to be all by myself, 13 stories by myself for four hours. I thought, what wonderful punishment. So anyway, um, I thought, okay, well, this was a blessing. So anyway, they finally get me off the boat, you know, um, here was the, the kicker, and this is a story I like to tell people. So the day the boat, because they waited till the last minute, the boat was leaving to Italy like the next day. Mm -hmm. They waited till the last minute. They would not let me off the boat. They said, okay, now at 4.30 in the afternoon, you can go get your new, um, your new orders. I went to personnel and, you know, God has a hand in everything, I tell you. So I sat there in personnel and, you know, and, and maybe right now the Navy will kick themselves in the ass when they hear this. But I sat in personnel, I walked up there and this woman is working there. And um, she said, you're Guzman? I said, yeah. And she goes, uh, I got your records here. She said, I'll be right back. I sat there for 45 minutes waiting on this woman to come back. I don't know where the hell she went. I said, well, here's my files. Oh, shit, I'm taking them. I left. I mean, the boat's leaving in the morning. You know, I grabbed my files. It had my name on it. It was a sealed record. So I left. The next day I reported to the weapon station. I got to the weapon station. They send me over there. You know, that's where they used to send all the pregnant women, all the pregnant torpedo men. So I get over there and one of the chiefs there says to me, that's what we need. Another pregnant one. You, I don't want you here. I said, okay. I grabbed my orders out of his hand. I went back to personnel at the weapon station. And I said, so I got there and this chief told me, um, another pregnant woman, we don't want you here. I grabbed my orders, I'm back. I said, I don't know what you want me to do. I tell you, God is good because standing right next to me was a master chief of the base. He says, you know, I need an assistant. Do you know how to type? I knew how to type with two fingers. I said, yes, of course I know how to type. <laughs> and, um, he said, okay. Well, my chain of command was a senior chief of the base, the master chief of the base, the XO and the CO. That was my chain of command. And I went to work for the senior chief of the base and for the master chief. Um, and I was their assistant. And this is back in the eighties. We didn't have computers, mm -hmm. they brought us a computer. You know, it was this huge box. I sat there and they gave me the manual. I, you know, I was really good at looking at procedures and protocols. And I sat there and I read an entire manual on how to turn on the computer. Um, it was the most wonderful thing that happened because I had such a horrible pregnancy and the master chiefs were like, you know, you're not feeling well, go home. It's okay. If you don't feel well tomorrow, just call us. Um. And I was there until I was eight months pregnant. I worked with the master chief and the senior chief. They were amazing people. Um, and one day talking to master chief, um, the master chief said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, by then my husband, his submarine got stationed in Maine. So he's in Maine. I'm in Charleston. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to be a single parent. I got married. This is not how life is supposed to be. Right. Nice. And, um, and I said, you know, to tell you the truth, master chief, I've said, I'm so disappointed in this, you know, in what's happened in, in, in the military and the experience that I've had. 
I said, I just want to be with my husband. I just want to get out and be with my husband. He goes, well, you can't. He said, because the day that you picked up your new orders, you signed a page 13. Meaning that once you get those new orders, you can't ever get out. And I said, I didn't sign a page 13. I grabbed my orders and I walked out. And he said, and there's the loophole. Master Chief went to Sunel. That page was never signed, meaning pretty much I didn't have orders. And Master Chief said, you want out, I'm going to get you out. He followed the CEO of the base every day, his golf course, and said, we need to let Marjorie out. We need to let Goose out. They used to call me Goose. We need to let Goose out. And finally, the CEO was so tired, he said, whatever the hell you want, Master Chief, just leave me alone. <laughs> and so Master Chief was able to get me out of the military when I was eight months pregnant and send me up to Maine afterwards to go see, you know, be with my husband at the time. Wow. And, um, and that's how I was able to get out because I thought what's going to happen. Cause he said, if you give birth, he said, your orders are going to change. He said, and I don't know where they're going to send you. Um, and I just kept thinking, I don't know. I mean, I didn't have any family. I was alone in South Carolina. I didn't, you know, my family that the, the family I had lived up in New York and there was no way I wanted to raise a child in New York. And I was like, you know, I'm a married woman. I should be with my husband. Um, so then anyway, so I got out, I ended up going to Maine. Um, once I got out and I said, you know, well, I'm a veteran, I should have some kind of, you know, some kind of benefit or something. And they said, well, no, you did less than 24 months. You get no benefit. I said, well, is there anybody that can help me with CV? No. Resume. No. Um, so eventually um, my husband, you know, he was in service. Um, we ended up getting stationed back in Charleston. By then I had two children. I hadn't worked because I couldn't find any work. I thought, what can I do? You know, I mean, in the military, I was assistant to the master chief. You know, I ran, um, I helped when, when I was in kitchen duty, I helped the senior chief there. You know, I was a torpedo man. I knew policy procedures. I knew how to read a manual. I knew how to read protocols. I knew how to do all of this stuff. And all of a sudden I get out and it's like, all you can do is be a security guard. So I thought, you know, I have two small children. There's no way that I'm risking my life to take care of cars or a grocery store. I mean, because that was the only place that they would give me any work. And in the meantime, I'm putting up with a bad marriage because I was dependent on this person because I couldn't find any work. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what did I do? I mean, I, all I had was a high school diploma. I had been, you know, I, I had one of the best trainings. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly intelligent because I know that. I mean, I was a freaking genius. <laughs> and so then, you know, I thought, what can I do? And all I could do was be a security guard. So I stayed in a bad marriage for a few years um, and I was married to one of those sailors, you know, has a woman in every port kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And um, so eventually um, what I did was I found like through unemployment, um, they were doing a welding program. So I went and took a welding class and I became a welder and I went to work for General Dynamics and they used to build submarines. Um, before that, I had worked, I think, uh, part-time at the shipyard doing inventory in like 200-degree weather rooms, mm. doing inventory on the at, at the Navy shipyard. Here I was, you know, and, and I thought, I can't believe that this is where my life is. I mean, this is all I can do. This is all that gets out of it. Um, and no help from anyone. So I thought, you know, so you feel lost. You're like, what the hell did I do with my life? Maybe I should have stayed in. Maybe, you know, I mean, maybe I should have taken the, you know, the VA, uh, what, what is it, the, the, the college thing? You know, the I was like, yeah. yeah, the GI Bill, I never put a penny into because I thought no one, you know, I had no one to help me, even in this, no one to advise me. That was the thing. Right. I had no one. I was alone in the world. And here I am married and alone in the world with only my children. Um, so eventually I went to work at General Dynamics as a welder. And then I did like I was doing pipe fitting. Um, and again, it was the same environment, you know, they hate you because you're a woman. 
So they ended up sending me in the state department and I was, I became a sandblaster. I sandblasted with diamond grit for three years working in that damn company. Um, and by then I got divorced. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to take care of my kids. I, I married a deadbeat, you know, so he never paid a day of child support. I think he paid like a couple of years and I had to fight him every single day. Um, I was, I felt like the only Hispanic in South Carolina, because that was another thing going to court as a Hispanic woman. I mean, I was treated like garbage and, and, and I could think of, you know, I'm not one to sit there and complain about things like that, but it was, it was, um, I had to go to court to fight him for child support one day. And, um, the judge said to me, what kind of house do you live in? I said, well, I have a four bedroom house. He goes, you have a four bedroom house? And I thought, well, shit, where the hell am I? Right. You know? But I'm not taking my kids to New York. They're going to be raised with a backyard. Yeah. And um, so anyway, so I did that and I worked for that damn company. And finally they shut it down. They had, they laid everybody off and they had to pay for a retraining. This is when Bill Clinton became president. He shut the Navy base and everything in South Carolina. Um, it was a Republican state, so he shut down everything that was happening in the Republican states. And um, I was one of the last employees to leave General Dynamics, so they had to retrain us. So I ended up getting a JTPA program, and that's when I finally got to college. Um, so I had to go to college. I became a med tech. I worked in a laboratory, um, which was, it was great because I wasn't in the weather, but I was making like $5 less an hour than I was when I was working out there like a, like a, like a crazy person digging ditches and working out there sandblasting. But the whole time, you know, my drive was my children. Um, mm -hmm. And I never talked about being in the military anymore. Mm -hmm. um, when I went to work for General Dynamics, it didn't matter, right? I took every single class that they had. I did every blueprinting class. I did everything. And I was like, look, guys, I'm a vet. And they were like, who cares? And it was like, okay, there was no VA there. The VA always said to me, well, you know, you never did, you, you did less than 24 months. We can't help you. I mean, nothing, no help. And I was like, okay. So I just felt lost. Like, okay, what do I do now? So now here I am raising my kids. And I thought, I mean, that was my drive, my children. My children was my drive. And the, and the fact that I, I don't quit, you know, I'm not a quitter. Um, I'm just going to keep on fighting. And the more you tell me you can't do it, the more I'm going to prove you wrong, you know, and it's, uh, I'm going to say, you know, if, if I'm not going to give up and we're always going to eat. Um, so I put up with all kinds of crazy. I finally um, started working in a microbiology lab at, at the Medical University of South Carolina. And I worked there for about seven, eight months. And I thought, this is for the birds. I can't live in a work in a lab for the rest of my life. Um, and I went across the street to the college there, the medical university had a, a bachelor's program and I got my bachelor's in one year. And by then I got remarried again. I had met someone else and I got me remarried and that marriage didn't last not even two years after being together for a long time, living apart when we finally moved in together. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with um, not trusting, not believing in anyone. And so then it's one of those things that you're wondering like maybe I, now, years, 20 years later, I sit there and say, I could have been more of a patient woman. I could have been more of a trusting wife. I could have been, you know, there were things, it wasn't all his fault. It, it was a lot of it my fault. You know, I was always paranoid. I was always hypervigilant because I always thought someone's coming out to hurt me. Someone is gonna, you know, tell me you can't do this. What the hell are you doing here? So it was, it was something that I took out on him. Um, so the marriage, the second marriage didn't work at all. Um, even though I sat there and I thought, you know, this is a man of my dreams and it just didn't work because I didn't know how to make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, because I just didn't have skills to make things work because I was always on the defensive. Well, you'd and been it, fighting, you'd been fighting that whole time. Exactly. And, and expected to be accepted, to be, 
you know? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was one of those yeah. things that now as an older woman, I sit there and I, and I think, you know, I was like, there's no way I'm going to allow my husband to roll his eyes at me. There's no way anybody's going to give me an attitude. There's no way I'm going to put up with this disrespect. And it was always about respect or someone's not going to, I'm not going to allow it to be disrespected because that's how I felt when I was in the military and when I got out mm-hmm. and, um, and it, destroyed our marriage. I really believe it destroyed our marriage. Um, I see it now years later, but at that moment, I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have any patience. And I was just like, my life is my children. This is it. I have to protect these children. And I felt like that was my job was just only to protect them. Not my life, not worry about me, but just my children because they were females. And I didn't, I didn't want them to live through what I lived through. Right. I didn't ever want anyone to say to them, you can't do this. You don't belong here. Um, so you know, I finally got my bachelor's degree and um, I got divorced the sec- a second time. And you're thinking, what the hell's going on with life? And, you know, I, like I said, no one ever knew I was in the military. I, I never mentioned being a veteran. So I ended up moving to a little tiny town in Hampton, South Carolina. And at that moment, I was um, coordinating programs at the medical, for the medical um, students um, for them to, you know, the, all the young doctors, we were trying to get them to come to the rural areas of South Carolina. I did that for a few years. I coordinated programs. I mean, I, I was doing four different jobs. It was amazing. And I, you know, you feel challenged. Um, and, um, and then I went to work for the doctor, the small town doctor. And he said, Hey, you know, anything about clinical research, which is what I do now. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know. And he said, I have the code of federal regulations. I said, I know how to read that. So I read the code of federal regulations. I said, I can work for you. So I went to work for him and we opened up a research site in Hampton, South Carolina. And um, after that, I went back to the medical university in Charleston. Um, I worked there for a little bit and I thought, this is not for me working at a university. So um, I packed my bags and I moved to Florida and I came to my, you know, to Florida and it, it's been a blessing because everything was great since I got here. There's always been something great, but it, it's always been a struggle. Mm-hmm. Now the bottom line, I mean, it's, it's um, that's been 20 years since I came to Florida. Um, it's been a long time. And um, as you can see, I have my site. But um, I, you know, I became an auditor eventually. I worked with different pharma companies. Um, so now that I have my own research site, and I don't have, you know, I was a contract auditor for a long time within pharmaceuticals, um, and um, I wanted to open up my own research site, and I was looking for an accountant. And I thought, um, you know, um, I, I need to go to accountant. There was a business event, and that's when I met my friend Ruth. Mm-hmm. He was an, she's an accountant. Um, she's a, a veteran uh, Marine and um, she was back in the, in the military. She was in there for 17 years, mm-hmm. um, but she went in in the 80s. And um, at the event, we just started chit-chatting and um, we became the best of friends. And I told her, I said, well, you know, I was in the Navy, you know, and I whispered it. Yeah. And she was like, what are you talking about? I said, well, I don't ever talk about it. You know, you didn't see it in my business. I never told anyone this was a veteran-owned business. I never said anything about it. Um, years, uh, I think like 10 years ago, I got a letter from the VA saying, I guess they saw I was getting older and they were like, hey, maybe you can qualify now. And I filled it out and they were like, oh, well, you make too much money now. So that's why you don't qualify. No, you can't use the VA. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll never use anything. Why, why are you even contacting me? If you literally don't want me have, you don't want anything to do with me. Oh my and, and it's, it's almost like a kick in the gut every time that they, you know, because it's like, it's a reminder. And I think I mentioned to you in the past, like literally when I left the military, I blocked everyone's name. And, you know, after the last time we talked, we had spent about a week since we talked, I, I, a few names have come back, 
Mm-hmm. I literally could not remember anyone's name because it was something, it was such a trauma that I cannot remember people's name. I remember one chief. I remember one asshole in the, in, in my department, <laughs> but I don't remember even the girls who were my friends who we used to go shopping. You know, when we, I remember we went out to see, to do circles and we ended up in Jacksonville. We went to the mall. I can't remember anybody's name. Right. Um, so, so it was just like, I, I totally blocked blocked it and every time the VA sends me a letter to say hey maybe you want to use a VA and I fill it out and they say no you know that's another kick in the gut mm-hmm. um so finally my friend was like you know you have to be proud of the you know and and my thing was like I wasn't in long enough I wasn't in long enough it was like almost I was ashamed like mm-hmm. I, I didn't even make it to two years oh I got out because I was pregnant you know and after we sat there and I met some other ladies who were you know army vet um air force vet we became really close friends you know marine vet navy vet we all sit together and it was like it's not about how much time you were in I don't care if you were there one day it was the fact that we made the decision that we were going to protect our country we made the decision that not everyone in this world is making that we said we want to do this for our country because that was ultimately what I wanted. I wanted to protect my country. I was here for my country. We didn't think about a war happening back in the eighties, but it happened, right? Desert storm happened. As soon as I got out, it happened. Then people were in shock that we were going to war. And I was like, that's what we joined for. We were willing to take a bullet for our country. Right. Well, not everyone, I came to find out, not everyone thinks that way, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that we even signed that first day and we, we put our hand up and we said, we're going to do this, should be honored and I shouldn't be ashamed that I wasn't there more than 24 months or whatever that the VA is telling me you weren't in long enough you know that that's where and I'm angry now because it it comes back and 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 this is what my friends would tell me they were like you know don't be ashamed about it you made a decision that other people in this world don't you know the majority of the people don't do and you are a veteran day one the minute you sign that paperwork you are a veteran and I don't care if you got discharged dishonorably or honorably, whatever, obviously honorably means something, but you know, there were so many things happening in the 80s. People were overweight. They got kicked out. If people were gay, they got kicked out. You know, they got dishonorable discharge and now we're okay with it. I mean, you know, if, if, if you were found out that maybe you went to a communist party and now we have a whole communist uh, a party completely running, you know, trying to get into our Senate. I mean, you know, and, and back in the day, people got kicked out for these reasons and they left with a dishonorable discharge. It didn't matter what they were doing. And, and and why is this okay? I mean, this is what I wouldn't talk about it. And, and, and it was so sad that I didn't talk about it. I should have had support. I should have had veteran friends because no one understands what we've gone through. And we could sit there and we could explain it to our family. We could sit there and we can talk to anyone else. The fact was that when we signed up, we were doing something for our country and then they, they went against us. And that is the biggest disappointment you could feel. I mean, it, it's just a horrible feeling. When I explain it to someone else, they're like, yeah, I get it. But when I explain it to you, who mm-hmm. you're a veteran, you get exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. And that was what I was missing in my life. I didn't realize that every time I would sit there and tell somebody, well, yeah, I was, but I don't talk about it. It was like, oh, okay. And even when you explain it to your kids and everything, no one really understands you like another veteran and another veteran woman. And that was the biggest thing is that another veteran woman. Um, so then we, you know, we become very vocal about veterans. It is, you know, we are a veteran-owned business. 
um, have a friend who was working in the VA and she was like, um, she said, Marjorie, you need to get your paperwork in because, you know, I have tinnitus. I have vertigo forever. Um, um, I believe because I slept on top of weapons, I had a complete hysterectomy at the age of 33. I mean, they had to take everything out. Um, I had polyps on my gallbladder, which is exposure radiation. And, um, and I remember being on the boat. Um, you know, everybody in the, in the submarines used to wear those Geiger counters. And I remember asking the chief, how come we're not wearing Geiger counters? And he's like, you're being ridiculous. You're not being exposed to anything. And I'm thinking, but we're putting the weapons, the bombs into the submarine. Right. How the hell are the Samariners exposed, but we're not. Right. You know what? You need to quit whining and complaining and get back to work. That mm. was his answer. Right. But we never wore Geiger counters because I was being ridiculous. You know, that was his response. You're just whining. So You're just a whiny woman. <laughs> You're just a whiny woman. And what are you even doing here? You know what? If you had a problem with it, you shouldn't be here. That was their answer. That was always their answer. <clears throat> but anyway, so um, everyone supporting me and pushing me to um, in my paperwork to see if I qualify for disability. And um, I tell you, I, you know, it was just so hard. And I thought, you know, I can do this. And I really wanted to be a part of talking to other veteran women. But I also realized that it, it hurts me and it affects me. Um, and it's brought back trauma. Mm -hmm. Like I tell you, like I could smell the pier, I could smell the submarines, I could smell the fuel, I could smell, I can taste. I mean, I, I, PTSD, I guess. I don't know. VA's denied it, so I have to go back and keep going on. But the point was that you know I requested my records, and um, my friend made sure I filled out the paperwork, and the records arrived right away. I'm not going to say that it was an issue. They they, they got there right away. And um, I looked at him and I started to read and I thought, I can't believe I lived this life. And I took those records and I threw them in a box and they sat there for about eight months. It was six to eight months. I wouldn't, I wouldn't follow up. And all of my friends could say, Marjorie, you have to go back. We have to take you to like, no, no, we hit, you know, you need to get the paperwork in and everything else. And I was like, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'm too busy. I have other things going on in my life. And so finally, um, my friend Ruth came and she said, I'm picking you up tomorrow. I made an appointment for you. Uh, our other friend already put you on the calendar. Um, I'm picking you up tomorrow. We're going to the, to the base. And I thought, okay, well, shit, let me grab my records. I grabbed my records and um, I was like, no big deal. It's just paperwork. And I felt like I was having a panic attack. Mm -hmm. And when I arrived on there, the hospital, and my friend showed her ID and there's a military guy sitting there, I couldn't breathe. And I'm walking in there and the whole time I was there, I was on edge. I couldn't breathe. And, you know, we've had a discussion about it. It's because, you know, we're working in a professional environment. I've been in a professional environment. I don't have a problem saying what I have to say in a very professional manner. But I always feel when I'm around someone who is in the military that I have to be on the defensive mm. because I never know what's going to come out of someone's mouth. Right. And that's how I feel. Now, it might not be true. Because for some reason, men who were in the military who were, not all of them, but a lot of them were horrible people, mm -hmm. feel that when they're around veteran women, that they can just open their mouth and say whatever they want. In the real world, in the professional world, you don't do that. You don't work at a pharmaceutical company and think that you can walk in a room and just talk to anyone any way you want to. Mm -hmm. And so then I feel that when I'm around veteran men, it's like, no one has been disrespectful. I think one time somebody said they were going to kind of push their way in and I pushed the guy back and I said, what the hell, what are you doing? Like, stay on your lane over there. It, it's, 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 I'm always on the defensive because I always feel like someone is going to think that because we're bettering women, you can say whatever you want to say. 
Right. And that's not something that I'm going to allow. But I don't feel that way about my entire, my everyday life because that's not the real world, right? But um, anyway, so I, I said, you know, this is, this is the, the, the problem that I'm dealing with right now mm -hmm. because it's been 30 years um, and pretty much I blocked everything. Um, I, I moved on with my life. I thought, you know, it, it was no point even been, being in the service. It, no one helped me afterwards. I felt lost. I was confused. What am I going to do now? What, what did I do? Why did I get out? I mean, it was just a horrible feeling that you feel so like, like you're just like thrown out of the house and it's like, here, figure it out on your own. And, um, and so then I moved past that. And so 30 years later, now, you know, I finally, right before COVID happened, I got a letter and I was, you know, approved um, for tinnitus and vertigo. Um, not all of the vertigo. I guess the day I went, I wasn't dizzy enough. So I have to now search for medical records to prove. Um, PTSD, they said I never made my appointments, which no one ever contacted me or anything. And that's the, apparently that's the norm where they say, we send you a letter, we, we contacted you, we emailed you. But it's not true. So they denied it. They denied all of the other issues that I had, all the female issues I had. They said it was not enough. And it was the day right before COVID, everybody was leaving their office. So that was last year. So at least, you know, I got in um, at 20% right now, disability. Um, tinnitus is, I mean, that is just the, the constant noise and the screaming in my ear. Um, but then I realized while I was talking to other people, the fact that I'm smelling and I'm hearing and I'm tasting and I didn't realize how hypervigilant I always was. And I thought everyone thought that way, you know, um, the things that would get me so angry or just constantly like, this is disrespectful. Or I thought this was everyone's normal behavior. You know, I have, I have daughters and my daughters, you know, they, they walk around life and I'm like, why are you not paying attention? And, and it was like, I kept thinking, why is everyone walking around like life, not paying attention to the dangers around us? But apparently that's not how the real world works. And that's not how everyone really thinks not constantly thinking about being in danger um you know i am a true believer in having weapons i am a true believer in protecting my family and i tell you i had booby traps in my house you know for years i still do i mean because i you know i have an alarm here i have an alarm there if you come in through this door you're going to get this you're going to get that i mean i walk into a room and i have to see where's the exit where's the exit i can't sit now i can sit here because this is my office but i can't sit with my back against the door if i go to a restaurant you know and it's a constant like constantly vigilant of what's happening because I never know what's going to happen. And that's not normal thinking. I mean, not normal, but I mean, it's not, it's not what everybody is thinking. And I didn't realize that. I just thought everybody's walking around, you know, looking to get in trouble. So anyway, so that, that's my story. So now I'm dealing with the VA. Um, it was wonderful speaking to you because I know that we're going to, you know, we're going to push forward. Um, I spoke with all of my friends and we're going to push forward because we all kind of feel the same way, you know, where we're just not, we just kind of moved on, you know, I mean, I, I am, I'm pretty much one of the greatest in my field. I have to brag, <laughs> at least I think I am or everyone around me tells me, um, and I'm very proud of everything I've done. You know, I raised my children alone. I raised my children to be professionals. They're both professionals. You know, one of them is a partner here in the business. Um, you know, we are constantly looking at the future because I mean, that's, that's our life. But having to deal with everything that I'm dealing with again now, it's almost kind of going back and, and it's causing me all of this anxiety that I was just like, you know, I had put it away and, and thrown it back. But I know that this is something that I have to do. I have to deal with everything that's coming and I have to do because, you know, I deserve that someone should have helped me. Someone should have helped me when I needed help. 
someone should have at least directed me or someone should have said, you know what, you did this. Hey, let me help you put a resume together. If that's the only thing that they would have done, I could have seen that, okay, I have better options in life than having to go become a welder and have to, you know, do ditches and become a sandblaster. Um, you know, so, so I tell people I've had 20 careers um, and I'm constantly looking better our lives. Um, we always want more. Um, I know that we deserve more, but what going back to Clubhouse what has been amazing. I went on, you know, I've gone into a couple of the veteran groups and I think I mentioned it to you. Um, I got into the veteran group and I was so nervous. I'm never nervous speaking in front of anybody. I, I mean, I did training and protocols and everything else in, in pharma. And in there, I was all shaky and nervous, you know, because it's, again, it's that thing, like you never know someone's going to say the wrong thing. Um, but it's been amazing because there's so much help out there now and everyone is sharing so much, you know? I mean, they, everybody's just like, hey, I have this or, you know, log into this and I can help you with this or I can help you with that. And it's just such a, it seems like more of a caring community or at least it's not acceptable not to be caring, right? So, I mean, back in the past, it was okay to tell someone, you, you know, you need to be barefoot and pregnant. I don't think that's gonna fly so well nowadays, right? Right. So, I mean, so that's the difference, I think. And um, it seems like a very caring group out there. Um, obviously, people have gone through a lot of trauma with all of the wars that we've had. And maybe that's what's made them a little bit more of caring people. Um, but, but, you know, it, it's been amazing speaking to the veterans there. And, um, and that's how I met you. And it's been amazing because I'm like, okay, we, we're going to keep pushing forward. We're going to keep pushing forward. Um, and we're going to try to get all the help that we need. Um, so that we can move on, you know, because I want to move past this. I want to move past this. But now I tell everyone, you know, I'm a Navy vet. I'm a Navy vet. You know, I was a torpedo man in the Navy. Uh, you know, I, I, I did as much time as I did. I think it was like 22 months or something. Um, I, I went in to serve my country. Um, and so, you know, now I'm proud of it. Now, now I speak about it. Um, and we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens from now on. So. And I just, That's my short story, guys. <laughs> Marjorie, like, I mean, I just, I love it. I love hearing you tell your story. You know, we talked for a while last week and, but when, as soon as you started talking in that clubhouse veteran room and you said, you know, I'm just now starting to come out to tell people that I was, I'm a veteran, like it triggered in me, like, I know that, like, I know exactly where she is because you know, I mean, I, my story is like, I got out eight years ago, but it wasn't until I started talking to the guys with veteran trash talk that I really admitted, like, I mean, in passing every once in a while, I would tell people that I was, mm -hmm. was had been in the army because it was like my whole life. Like I was in yeah. for 13 years, you wow. know, and it was almost hard to avoid saying it sometimes, but I didn't like it. It was like, you know, cussing at people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was an army veteran and I was so nervous about connecting with other women veterans because of how we are. Right. And we kind of talked yeah. about last week too, where it's like, you never knew when, when a woman would come up, like, mm, what kind of woman are judge. you? Are you going yeah. to uh, sleep your way to the top or are you going to work hard? And, you know, if, and if you, you know, you didn't really connect with a lot of women or yeah. I'm like, I didn't like, I, I connected didn't. with some, but a lot of times, like the women that I connected with were officers and I was enlisted. So I couldn't hang out with them exactly. you know, would talk at work, but then that was about it. And we couldn't really form good friendships, but you know, it was just like, there was that level of untrust in 
within the female community as well, because of how we were treated and these boxes that we were put into. And then we yes. put another into these boxes. And so when you said that, I just immediately clicked with you and I was like, I know exactly where she's coming from. Yeah. And I knew I had to talk to you. And so I love sharing your story because I know for a fact, if you feel that way and I feel that way, then our listeners have felt that way. There's a lot that feel that way. And, yeah, and I mean, and, and I remember when, you know, when I was in the, on, on the boat, I mean, it really was, you know, who you were buddies with who you hung out with after work, who you hung out with, you know, on the boat, who you got drunk with, you know, and those were the ones that got put in the good positions. You know, I was out there cleaning toilets because I didn't party because I didn't hang out with the chiefs. I didn't sleep around with anyone, you know, I mean, and, and that was the thing. And, um, I remember I had one of the officers come in there. Um, and I was working at one, you know, I was working with the, one of the chiefs and I was, you know, I was his assistant, uh, the one in the kitchen and I was helping him out. Um, we were trying to get some paperwork done because we were going to get like some kind of inspection. And um, this, this officer was, you know, was known for promoting the pretty women, promoting, you know, the, the giggly girls, the ones that went along. I mean, I don't know what else was happening, but, you know, he was known for that. And I remember he walked in and um, he's just standing next to my desk. And I'm like, what is this guy doing here? And he said, um, he said, you know, he said, you would be so much prettier if you put on a little bit of makeup. Oh. And I said, well, I'm so glad that this is not a beauty pageant then. <laughs> no kidding. And my chief came out and my chief, my, my chief went off on him. Like, what are you doing here? Like, what, why are you even bothered? Why would you even say that to her? You know, so there were good people in there too, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and I, I just thought, but it made me so uncomfortable because we had to deal with this officer, right? And right. we had to take paperwork. So every time I had to go do something or take something there, I was thinking, I hope this guy doesn't say anything to me. You know, and it was the same thing with like chiefs. I had a couple of chiefs, you know, um, that I respected. And I always remember there was one chief that I respected. Um, and I thought, man, this man is, you know, he's amazing. He's an amazing uh, chief. I mean, he was just such a respectful person. And I thought, you know, and because I didn't hang out with anybody or after work or anything or, you know, so I didn't know what happened. Right. Whenever anybody was out. And um, and I remember we went out, like I said, we went out on a, on, on, we were out to sea and I remember we, we, we got to some port and um, you know, every port in the Navy had a bar. And so I was, I, I went to the mall with a bunch of the girls and I said, um, I said, well, let's go back to the boat. And they were like, no, let's stop by, let's have a beer and everything else. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I don't really want to, but I didn't want to be like ah, Marjorie, you know, they called me goose. They were like gooses again, not wanting to hang out. I thought, well, let me try. I went to the bar with them and, you know, we had a bunch of shopping bags and everything else. And, you know, men, everybody, you know, everybody from our department was at the bar. And um, you know, the, the chief that I had so much respect for, you know, he comes up to me and he's like, hey, it's good to see you out here with us. And I was like, okay, well, you know, cool. Um, he was way older than I was, you know, I was 19, 20 years old then. And um, he said, uh, you know, you look so nice. And I thought, well, thanks, chief. You know, you don't think anything of it, you know? Yeah. Wow, you know, out of uniform, you sure look pretty, you know? And 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 there it came. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I tell people, you know, obviously men have come on to us, but it was such a heartbreak because you had such, had such a respect for this person. Yeah. And you're thinking, you know, chief is seeing the kind of work that I do. He respects me as a sailor. I'm here doing my job. And here it comes. Right. And he made a pass off to me. You know, he, he, he made a pass. And I said, um, 
you know, chief, I said, I know you're married and I'm married. I said, so it's not okay that you're saying what you're saying to me. I said, so I'm gonna go ahead and go before you continue. And I went up to the girls and I said, um, I'm heading back to the boat. Let me take your bags and everything. And they were like, no, no, no. And I was like, no. And I remember just standing outside waiting on that stupid bus to come and pick us up to take us to the boat. And I just sat there with everybody's bags thinking, I mean, I was just so heartbroken. Right. Then I thought it doesn't matter the work that I do. It's not going to matter. It's just that I'm not playing the game. I'll never get promoted. I'll never do better in this department. I'll never because I'm not going to play that game. Um, and it was so heartbreaking because it's someone you respect so much. And he was way older than I was. So it was almost like a father figure. Mm-hmm. And, and so you try to explain it and men are like, well, you know, they're going to come on to you. How about, you know, one of the males and your buddies with one of your chief and your chief comes on to you? Right. What, what do you think would would have felt like? Someone that you're, you know, you're working so hard and you're trying to get promoted and you're trying to do the best that you can as a sailor, you know, because that's what I went in. I was doing my job. Mm-hmm. The one person that I felt any respectful in, in that department came on to me. First chance he had. First time I had ever been out. Came on to me like that. And it was such a heartbreak. And, you know, and I never told anyone. And I sat there because I would never tell my husband, you know, and, um, and I just sat there and I thought, I can't believe it. And every time I would look at him after that, it was like I couldn't even look at him anymore. Right. And um, every time he would come to talk to me, it was like I always made sure that someone else was around. And if I would see him coming towards me, I would try to walk away. And I don't know if maybe he felt bad about it. I I don't really care. But the point was, I was a young person and he was a person that was in a position of power. He was a senior chief and I had so much respect for him Mm. and he came on to me. Right. And I thought, you know, that is what that's why we blocked it, right? Because it was almost like it was a paternal, a, a father figure, and and that person came on to you, and it was so disgusting because it makes you feel disgusting, like you're doing something wrong, right? And you know? too, like, because that that happened to me too once I like when I was in Korea, and but it, it was my sergeant major, so I was in a position where I was a platoon sergeant. I was in charge of twenty three soldiers, and I had no other NCO, and I had no officer in my platoon. And my first sergeant had been um, relieved of duty for inappropriate behavior. So there was nobody really for me to talk to. And I would go to battalion and talk to my sergeant major and he would guide me because I'd be like, I was like a pretty new NCO, you know, and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in charge of all these soldiers. So he would guide me and talk to me and, and I respect the same thing. I very much respected him. He would tell me like, you're an excellent soldier. You're an excellent leader. You're doing all the things right. And, you know, it was never inappropriate. And then I saw him out in town. Cause I was like kind of friends with his driver uh-huh. and I saw him and his driver out in town as we were like, base was closing. We had curfew in Korea and he's like, Hey, you just come ride with me. I'm, I've got Sergeant Major's car and Sergeant Major was with him. And he, Sergeant Major ended up driving. So his driver and I were in the back and Sergeant Major like driving us back to base. And he asked me, he said, hey, Sergeant, so who else are you giving chubbies to besides old driver here and me, right? Like, I don't even, I don't remember the driver's name. We were buddies, but I don't, just like you, like I forget everybody's name. I'm like, dump it. But he asked me who I was giving chubbies to besides him and his driver and I same so same thing I was just like like what are you talking about I was so upset you know oh hang on I was I was so upset like what like yeah 
Oh, like you, you've been like guiding me and leading me and mentoring me. And I thought for sure I could trust you. So I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's heartbreaking. And it's like, you, you start questioning all that time that you spent with your mentor and thinking, well, were they helping me because they think that I'm a good soldier or sailor or were they helping me because they were trying to get in my pants eventually? You know, that, it's a that, question, it's, all of that stuff, because yeah. that one comment that they make to you and you're like, and that affects you. things affect you because of the fact that we were so young. And that was what is also so, um, what makes me so angry now. It's the fact that we, you know, we were young and people say, well, you know, you were naive and everything. Yes, I was. I was naive. I, you know, like you mentioned, am I, is, the, is the chief helping me out? Are the people helping me out because they really want to help me out or are they expecting something or are they hoping that maybe someday, you know, something will happen? And that's the only reason why anyone helped out. But it affects you because it affected my marriage because you're constantly on the defensive. This man is bringing me flowers. Why are you bringing me flowers? What did you do? What's behind that? You know, or, you know, I love you. Yeah. Well, you said it one time, but you didn't say it two times. I mean, it was just the stupidest thing Mm -hmm. would cause arguments because you're constantly on the defensive because even the person that you love and that loves you, you're thinking they're going to do something wrong or they're going, you're always expecting something is going to go wrong. And so before it happens, let me attack you first. Well, and I'm sure too, because you see, you know, you see a lot of people cheating on their spouses. Like your first husband was, had a different lady at every port. So, I mean, that stuff sticks with you too. And because you see that at work all the time yeah, and then it's already happened to you too. Like that has to, that has affects you as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it it was both, it was both both men and women, you know, because like I said, I was on the love boat. And it was right. known that, you know, there was all kinds of stuff happening on that boat. Um, when the boat would go out to sea, you know, people would go do whatever they would do. I was like, I don't want to hear it. I don't care who's doing what. I mean, I just wanted to do my job and be gone because it was so disappointing. It was mm-hmm. like, su- it was such an unprofessional environment. And like I said, I thought I was going to go into the military. Right. And it was going to be so professional. And I was so proud of my uniform and I was so proud of what I was doing. And I thought, here I go, I'm going to make a difference. Naive and young, you know, this is, this is it. I'm doing something for my country. And then you go in there and yes, you're dealing with human beings, but it was like a free for all. It was known. And that was what was sad about it. It was that it was known. It's not like it was a secret. Like everybody, everybody just accepts it as normal. Exactly. And, you know, and, and that was the same too, back in the day, you know, if you were, if you were either, um, if you were in the Navy, you were either a whore or you were gay, one or the other. That was the same. And men will come up and say that to you. But what are you, a whore or are you gay? Like, what is that? I mean, no. what, what real world job would you talk to anyone like that? Right. You know, what real, I mean, once you get out of the military, where is that acceptable? Why is it okay that it happens in the military? You know, it's not okay. And it, what's really sad to me is that these young women are going into the military and they have to laugh along with it. Let me tell you one thing. It was a, a, a couple of years ago. I was at an event here in Orlando and um, it was a health fair. And, you know, we, we do all kinds of study here. So we were at the health fair. We were out there talking to people about it. And then, you know, there were some, I don't want to say too much in case they do listen, um, 
um, it, it seemed like it was a recruiting department came in from the military and um, we, we were talking to some, you know, they, they kind of set their table up next to us and there was a guy, you know, he was an officer obviously and then there was the enlisted woman there. I heard him and he's talking, ha 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 ha, he's making these, you know, he's laughing and you could just see her. She would laugh along too and the whole time I'm just kind of, you know, I start getting defensive because I see this young woman. Then the more I'm looking at her, you could just see she was uncomfortable. Mm. He's laughing and he's saying stuff and I don't even really know what he was saying or, you know, I wasn't trying to listen. But every time I looked over at her, she would just laugh and then she looked at me and it was almost kind of, this looked like, help me. Right. And I told my daughter who was with me, I said, poor girl. I said, I don't know what she's going through. I said, but look at her face. And, and it just made me so angry. Mm -hmm. like I wanted to go and punch this guy out because I'm like, you know, you are obviously, you have higher rank. She's sitting there eating crap because she feels that she has to. So as the event was happening, I went and, and you know, there were some other veteran um, um, people there. And there was one there that was, you know, um, talking about, you know, they, they had paperwork for like harassment or military sexual trauma or anything like that. So I grabbed like a handful of it and I pretended I was walking around to the different tables and I was like, here guys, here's some extra information. And I went up to her and I said, here's some information. I said, I'm handing it out to everybody. You know, we all have rights. We all have the, you know, we should you know, report anything that's inappropriate and everything else. And I just kind of gave it to her and I just kept walking around and he just stood there and looked at me like he wanted to punch me out. And I thought, I wish he would. Because now here I am an older lady. I'm a grandma now. And, you know, and it was this face. It was just, I, I, I can't forget her face. And it was almost like, yes, I have to laugh. But when she would look away, it was almost a sadness. And I think about this poor young woman, you know, and, I, and it reminds me of who we were. You know, I, I was, you know, so long ago. And like I said, it, it's been 30 years. And um, it, it just makes me so sad because it's not okay. That is not okay. And when you come out of the military, that's not okay behavior. And so what happens to what I've noticed is women who do come out of the military, when they, they're put in these professional environments and they talk the way that they talk. And, you know, some of it is vulgar and some of it is not okay. You know, and, and some of it is like, it's like, wait, you don't have to speak that way, you know, because you felt like you had to be part of the boys group when you were in the military. You don't have to do that. It's not okay. You shouldn't have to do it. We're not, we're not the same. And if I don't, you know, and if I'm not okay with someone speaking or saying thing that's inappropriate or, or that I feel that is disrespectful, I should be able to walk away or I should be able to say, you need to stop right now. And these young women don't know that. And they don't know that they can do that. You know, and that's just any human being. We should not be treated that way. Anyway, right. it just, like I said, it just, it makes me sad for that young person that I was. Right. You know, and everything that I went through that I, it probably could have saved um, my second marriage if I would have known what I know now. Right. You know, so. Well, and Margie, I've, I've said this in episodes past too, but you know, you haven't heard it, but like I was that girl where I, I kind of developed like a second personality where I was like vulgar. And a lot of times I would start conversations that way to try to like prevent it from happening, you know, because it was yeah. like a protective measure. Yes. And I thought that I was doing the right thing, like to fit in and like, not be so 
pushed out because I was already like hated. I was the bitch, you know, because I wasn't so sleeping you, around. You would control the room when you would do that, right? Right, because right, exactly. Would come at you, hey, I'm coming in here and I'm going to say this and that because, hey, I'm, I'm controlling the room. Exactly. That's what you were doing. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, now I know instead yeah. of doing that, I should have been like, don't, don't talk like that in front of me. You exactly, exactly what you're saying. And, yeah. and that's another message that I want to get out to our women, because I mean, not to feel guilty if you did that, but to understand that it's okay to not be okay with that sort of behavior exactly. and that sort of talk around you, because all of that does is makes things worse. It perpetuates it, you know? Yes. So you know, you're not really protecting yourself, but I had to really work on myself for a long time to like get past that because I was so angry at the person that I had become. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, when I went to work for General Dynamics, it was also a mostly male environment. Um, and I worked in that company for three years and I was known like, don't say jokes around Marjorie because she's not going to put up with it because mm -hmm. I would walk in there and men would start saying something. I would walk out of the room. I don't care what's happening. I would walk out of the room and it was like, oh, or they would start. And I was like, you can take that home, but don't say it in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, because my second husband, we were working together and nobody knew we were dating and, you know, we were there for a long time. And, um, and I remember it. And he told me, he said, um, I remember I went to get a, a soda out of the machine and there were some guys there and I was like, Hey guys. And they were like, Oh, Hey goose, you know, Hey Marjorie. And I was like, Hey, you know, and I walked away. So then they were like, damn, that Marjorie, blah, blah, blah. They were saying all kinds of stuff about me. And so my ex-husband who I was dating, but no one knew we were dating. He was like, yeah, you think she's hot? And he would, they were like, yeah, man, you know, I could do blah, blah, blah. They were talking all this garbage. Mm -hmm. So if you're really interested, you know, I can get to her. Oh no, don't say anything like that to her. She doesn't play. Don't say that to her. No, 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 no. I don't want any trouble. Do not say anything. We never, we would never say that in front of her. Mm. And when he told me that, I thought, I felt proud. Right. I felt good about that. And, and when I was, you know, I had all kinds of issues I had to fight in that company too. And I remember I had to go talk to one of the general managers there because I had one of the managers thinking that he was going to harass me too. And I told him, I said, let me tell you something. I said, I've been working for this company for over three years and my name has never been on the bathroom wall. I said, that's the person that I am. Mm -hmm. I said, so I'm not going to put up with anyone saying anything about me. I said, you can walk into any men's room. My name's not on that wall. Mm -hmm. I said, but like I said, it, it's okay if you were young, because that is a way of surviving, right? Because mm -hmm. you're in an environment, you're like, I have no choice. I live here. Right. I, tomorrow I have to be back. It's not like you can quit this job, right? You can't right. walk away from this job. You're, you're stuck in there. So you, you have to figure out what's going to be the best I can do here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what? I was labeled that bitch because like I said, I was, I raised, raised with brothers, was raised to be a fighter. My dad would always be like, I mean, I was raised in New York city. I mean, we, we had to fight all the time, you know, back in the eighties, it was a crazy time. And, um, you know, and, and I had an attitude, but you know, it was also that fear because I remember one of the guys telling me one time, like, yeah, you're such a bitch. But you know what? Accidents happen all the time when we were out at sea. Wow. And I thought, and I remember saying to him, I said, yeah, I said, you need to be careful because you could have an accident. But I knew what he, <laughs> but you know what? I would say things like that. No, I was small. Right. You know, I was only five, four. This guy was like over six feet tall, like over 200 pounds. And I thought, 
no, they would always put me on the midnight watch. How do I know this guy's not hiding somewhere and literally throw me overboard and nobody right. will ever find me? Right. But then you're constantly the defensive. You're constantly looking around corners because yeah, I had that tough exterior and yeah, I would talk a lot of trash and I was like, would bring it right back and I was really fast. That stays in you. You're thinking this guy hates me. This guy's looking to do something to me. Right. You know. And then when I would get off the boat at time, I would say. What if this person followed me home? Mm-hmm. And that's where that paranoia starts coming in, right? That hypervigilance. What if this guy, this guy hates me on the boat? How do I know he's not going to follow me? Mm-hmm. You know, we've heard of women getting attacked when they got off the boat. And I was thinking, what if somebody's hiding in my bush? And it was like a constant thinking, like, okay, who's coming after me? Right. Um, no, and, and, and it's just so sad because you can't quit. You can't walk away. Mm-hmm. And like I said, God is good because he's, he's been good to me and, it wasn't for the master chief. And I remember it was two master chief because the one master chief retired, he started the paperwork and the second master chief finished the paperwork. When I got out, um, master chief Larson and master chief Janikowski. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how old they would be now because they were way older then. And they were wonderful people. They were people that you could respect and, and just, just the kind people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that taught me also, you know, you, you can be in charge and you can be kind. And that's how I run my businesses. You know, right. you can be in charge and you can be kind. You don't have to mistreat people. And people will do things and do their job if you treat them with respect. And that's not what we've got, right? When we were in the military, it was like, let's put fear or let's harass you or let's disrespect you and make you feel small and maybe you'll get your job done. And that's not how it works. That's not how life is, you know? Oh. Definitely. So Marjorie, tell me about your business. Um, we want to promote your business as well. Okay. Well, um, like I said, I opened up, I, I am the owner of Opaz Clinical Research and we are located in Napopka, Florida, uh, which is a little bit north of Orlando. Um, we do clinical research trials from pediatrics to adults. Um, so I have been in clinical research for the last, no, 18 years, I guess it's been 18 years. I've been um, working in all aspects of clinical research. I've worked as a study coordinator, regulatory, uh, then I became a monitor working with different um, clinical research organizations, working with different sponsors, which are pharmaceutical companies. Um, I became a contractor, um, which was the best thing I could have done. Um, It pushed me to start my own business, which I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've always wanted to start my business, but because I was a single mom, I had to keep a steady job. I, I was I had that fear of what if it doesn't work, right? How am I going to feed my kids? So finally, by the time my girls got into college and everything, and I was like, okay, you know, I was traveling all over the U.S. because I traveled nonstop. Um, you know, I would travel sometimes Monday through Friday and be home Friday evening and traveling Monday. And I did that for about two and a half years right before I opened up my research site. Um, and then I said, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I have to open up the site. Um, and in 2016, I opened the doors, I rented the space. It was a small town. I went to the chamber of commerce and said, what is your growth? What is happening in this town? And they said, within five years, we're going to have this and that. So it's been since 2016 and the area here has like, I don't know, 10 times it's grown so much here. Uh, we're on the perfect location. Um, so what I do is I pretty much am the, uh, you know, I'm the executive director and I do the marketing, the networking, um, any of the regulatory documentations to start up any of the studies. Um, right now, we just got approved for an OCD trial, um, obsessive compulsive disorder for people who are already taking medication, um, which is um, 
something I'm very proud of, you know, that, that I was able to get. And we have about five different doctors working for us. Um, the doctors are contractors. They come in, they do their part, and then they go and we run the entire study. I am trying my best to get a PTSD study. Um, I, I feel passionate about that. And so um, unfortunately, because I never said I was a veteran, maybe that's why they never gave it to me, but they gave it to another research site in Orlando. Um, so now I'm, I am promoting, I am a veteran-owned business. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can get some kind of contract, government contract, where we can try to get those PTSD studies here um, and just help out. So we do everything, like I said, pediatrics, infant formula studies. We do Alzheimer's studies, OCD, uh, pediatric migraine, um, dermatology studies. I mean, we're, we're doing everything here. And we're trying to bring education of clinical research to the community. And we're a bilingual site. Um, that's one of the things that Orlando didn't have in the past. We run all of our studies in English and Spanish. Um, we're trying to get someone in here that speaks Creole because we have a huge Creole population. And we have someone that um, hopefully will be working with us soon who speaks Portuguese because we have a huge Brazilian population here. So um, that's what I do. And, and, and I'm hoping to be able to expand as clinical research throughout Florida. I mean, that's the, that's the goal. That's the dream. And um, that's what we're doing here. And, and hopefully we're making a difference in the community. So that's my biggest passion is working with the community. That's incredible. So who, like, who are you looking for to, to help in the community? Like, as far as um, if they were wanting to come to you and connect with you, you know, who, who's kind of your ideal client or, or person that you are looking well, for? Well, yeah, like if you go onto our website, topazclinicalresearch.com, um, we actually list our studies there. So we have infant formula studies. Um, we actually need to update it because we're getting about eight different studies coming up right now. We just closed some, closed some of the studies. So for our infant formula studies, we are trying to get in touch with pregnant moms. And this is amazing because the, the, the companies are creators of formula that's already on the market. And what they need to do is market, um, do clinical trials before they can put a new formula on the market. But what's coming up is amazing what they have. Um, one of the well-known formulas that's uh, one of the most expensive formulas, if you know anything about formulas, um, that company is one of the studies that we're doing. And we're giving free formula to two years. The catch is we have to get the babies here before day 14. Okay. So once they're 14 days old, 14 I could get them, 15, they won't qualify for the study. And the purpose is to give them the formula for two mm -hmm. years to see their growth amazing the kind of humans that are going to come out of this because it's just amazing formula mm -hmm. but those are the formula studies the pediatric migraine is for children who are suffering with pediatric um any type of migraine and that's up to age 21 because that's considered um pediatric um, population and um like i said the ocd we we just closed a couple of other studies um we had an alzheimer's study we just closed out so ocd is the next big one um we have skin cancer coming up so that's really exciting. Anyone who has squamous cell, basal cell. So what, what, what you're going to be able to do is go on our website and we're trying to set it up where if you click on the little flyers for each study mm -hmm. and it'll give you like um, you know, fill out your information and you can kind of get an idea of whether you qualify or not. And, um, and it's just basic. And then what we'll do is we'll contact you and we can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. We have our study coordinator who will call you and say, yes, you qualify. Or if you're pregnant and it's something you're interested in the future, just give us a call because these studies are usually open for enrollment for about a year. 
So for a year, we can get as many people in. And then after that, it shuts down. And it's all the formula that they want. Um, and the OCD trials is a 10-week um, OCD trial. So, I mean, I'm really excited about clinical research. That's my passion. I, I love it. Um, I love what, what, it, what it's bringing to the world. Um, and bottom line is whether people believe it or not, or, you know, I am very much about health. I am very much about, you know, eating natural. I am all about, you know, making sure that if I can drink a tea instead of taking a pill, I will. Mm -hmm. But I also believe that if you're sick, you need medicine. Mm -hmm. If there is something that we can prevent, it needs to be on the market. We can't sit there and say, oh, we hate medicine and sit there with high blood pressure. So what are we going to do? Yeah, we can exercise, we can try to food, but sometimes that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So what do we need to do? We need to have medication. Um, and I also want to let everybody know, don't forget that everything that's on the shelf in any of the CVSs or Walgreens had to go through clinical, tri clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So when you participate in clinical trials, you don't need insurance, you get paid participating and you're making a difference in the future your data is very important and um, especially minorities we need a lot more minorities in clinical trials um because if we think about it the data is not complete data right you hear right. that a lot about um, you know we don't have enough minorities we don't have enough minorities well because you know culturally that's something we try to do take care of ourselves with our food and, and, and home remedies mm -hmm. but we do need minorities to participate because we need data for every race. And that's what's really important. So anyway, that's me and my clinical research. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it, Marjorie. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'll make sure that I've got your website um, shown on the screen so that Thank people you. can it, screenshot it or type it and in. We are, we're um, the big purple sign. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and I just have to say, Marjorie, like, Again, I've so, I've said this to you so many times, but I just, I love your story and I love talking to you because Thank there you. are so many lessons if we're, if we're listening, you know, I mean, you have such a powerful story of, you know, you patriotism to your country and then getting in and being so disappointed because it's like, you know, a frat party going on yeah. and, and not like what you expected at all, but you still persevere through everything and fought through it. And then, you know, we're left out on your own. I mean, I've, so many people can hear this and yeah. be able to apply that to their own lives, like either one piece of your story or a lot of pieces of your story, you know, cause when you get out and you just feel like, oh, well, we're just throwing you away. You didn't, you yes. didn't serve long enough, you know, and kind of belittle your time and then not offer you any help. And I mean, whether you served for two days or 10 years or 20 yeah. years, whatever. I mean, I do feel like even now that system is failing as far as what we know is offered to us. I mean, yes. like, you know, you were a torpedo man and I'm sure there were so many different things that you could have had on your resume to get you a good job when you got out, but you know, we're not taught that stuff. And it, yeah. to me, it's like insane that there's such a gap there but I, I really hope that our listeners are, are taking this stuff in and, and understanding that, you know, I mean, we have a lot of resources out there now, which I'm trying to get, you yes. know, to people and have more people come on and, and share those resources with our veterans so that we, you know, you know, that it's, you don't have to just go to the VA, sorry for the dog. Um, but, you know, there are so many resources but also, even if you feel alone and feel like, 
you weren't given any help. Like you are such an inspiration and and saying, well, you know, my children were my why. Like I knew I had to do it. I had to figure something out. And you did. I mean, you figured out a lot of some things until you landed where you can be an entrepreneur and really do this, but you've made a difference all along the way. You know, I, I am imagining that a lot of that was a lot of struggle, like while you were, you know, trying to find your place in these different places and, and the way that you were treated as a civilian too, and, um, learning new things all the time. I am imagining that that was a struggle the entire time that it wasn't just like a cakewalk, but you made it and you, you're strong, you're independent and you're really a powerhouse. And I just love this. So I, I hope that, you have inspired our listeners the way that you're. Inspired. I hope so. I hope so. Really love I just, it. I just want to say one last thing. Um, you know, I just want everyone to, to remember that everything is temporary. Mm-hmm. Everything, our highs and our lows are temporary. Because trust me, like you said, it, it. There were times where I thought I'm about to pull every hair off my head, and I would just sit there and I was like, you do get to that point where you feel desperate. You're like, what do I do now? What do I do now? I, ha- I don't know what to do. And you just sit there and, you know, tomorrow's going to be another day and there's going to be, and, and when you are in the hole, you're going to get out of the hole, right? Cause there's only one way out of the hole. That's got to, you got to climb out. And so everything is temporary. And, and what I've also heard is I can't be happy when things are great because I know it's going to get bad. Yeah. That's life. Things are bad. Things are good. Things are bad. Things are good. But what's important is to, when you're in the good, and when the bad comes, you know, you're going to be able to get out of it. You've done it before. And so always remember, everything is temporary. They, you know, like you mentioned, if the VA doesn't help you, there are so many good people in this world. They really are good people. We just have to ask for help or just show up. I had somebody call me one day. And he's like, look, I have PTSD. I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I don't know what to do because I don't have a study for you. But hey, here's a number. Here's a doctor that I know. He, and, and the guy was just like, thank you. I just needed someone. I it just caught me off guard because I had no idea. I mean, and he was like, I, I see you were in the military and, and, and maybe you can help me. And I thought, okay, well, what can I do? Let me stop what I'm doing and let me try to help this person. And it's the same thing everywhere. There's people always willing to help. There's people that are saying whatever, walk away from those people. You know, that's, that's on them. Everything is going to be temporary. If you're feeling like there's no way that I can get out of this or I feel horrible, you know what, tomorrow's another day and you try again tomorrow. And if you don't want to think about it today, don't think about it today, think about it tomorrow and figure it out. So that's just one of the most important things that I've learned is that everything is temporary. Everything is temporary. So I hope I made a difference and I hope um, my words help someone. Well, they helped me. And I Thank mean, you. you really are so inspiring. And I just, I love it. Like it's, it's kind of depressing to hear your story and then put it up to mine because I did serve later. And I'm like, wow, um, not a lot has changed in the military, no. No. but it's so inspiring to know that, you know, when, when you are ready to speak up and say, yes, I'm a veteran there are people waiting for you 
and we're ready to lock arms and say, okay, we can do this together and we can connect. And I, I just love that. And I'm so excited to have met you. And I I look forward to you. And I'm so happy I met you. It was was wonderful. We'll have to meet real coffee together. Yes. Cause we're (laughs) we're actually really close by. Yes, we are. So, so we have to get together. Yes. All right, Margie, well, thank you so much again. And I'm going to just give another shout out for our sponsor, Neuroflow at neuroflow.com. Make sure you check out Marjorie at topazclinicalresearch.com and see if you or someone you know can be a part of some of that clinical research that is going to be life-changing for all of us. And if you need some further guidance or help, you can reach out to us anytime. You can find me on social media at Leah B-E Day. It's L-E-A-H-B-E-D-A-Y. Or just follow us at Veteran Trash Talk. Marjorie, do you have any further, uh, like uh, any last? No, you know what? I'm, I'm going to learn from you. I'm learning from all the veterans. Um, and I'm learning that it's okay. Yeah. Uh, ask for help, which I've asked you also for help, Leah. And, um, and I'm just so happy um, we've met the veterans that I've met because, you know, we don't look at race. We don't look at, you know, where we come from. We don't look at any of that. It was always, you know, that sisterhood yeah. has always been there. And, and it's just been beautiful meeting um, a lot of the female veterans and a lot of the male veterans I've met here lately too. Um, and, and I know that we can persevere over anything. Thank you for having me. It was lovely being on here. Thank you, Marjorie. And I look forward to having you again with Ruth, probably, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. I've already asked her. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. And we will see you next time. Veteran Trash Talk, Female Warrior Edition.